Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Midtown Atlanta, it's time for Top Docs Radio, brought to you by Medical Association of Georgia. With over 7,800 physician members, MAG is pleased to advocate on behalf of Georgia's patients and physicians. Visit mag.org and on Twitter at mag1849. Join the conversation on Twitter at Top Docs on BRX. Good afternoon, everyone. It is CW, your host here on the Top Docs Radio Show. It is our ongoing series with Medical Association of Georgia. We meet with them a couple of times every month, and sometimes we'll throw in a special episode here and there. And a topic that that is one that I think most of us need to have some idea of how we want to handle it well in advance, uh, ideally, is dealing with end of life. Uh, if we have you know, even for our own purposes, uh, as an individual, need to be thinking about what happens for us if we are compromised and and death is possibly imminent. How do we want to have our our last moments handled? And particularly when we're dealing with elderly uh, individuals in our families that that will be facing end of life choices coming up in terms of what sorts of life saving techniques are utilized to keep us alive. And and today. We have an expert on the subject, Dr. Richard W. Cohen. He is the chairman of the Georgia POLST Collaborative. POLST, of course, physician orders for life-sustaining treatment uh, that would be put to use in those times when, uh, as I mentioned, death might be approaching imminently. Are we going to do things like a ventilator and things like that? Um, He recently retired as a medical director of Wellstar Health Systems Ethics Department. He founded Wellstar Health System Ethics and Advanced Care Planning and End-of-Life Programs, and he is the chairman of the board of the Georgia Health Decisions, and as I mentioned, Georgia POLST Collaborative, and a member of the executive committee for the National POLST Paradigm Task Force. I'm interested, Dr. Cohen, you went from working as an orthopedic surgeon to focusing on end-of-life. That's an interesting transition. I appreciate you taking some time to talk to us about it. It's been, number one, it's counterintuitive why I'm an orthopedic surgeon. Orthopedic surgeons, by and large, don't look at things quite this way. But I had an interesting family history. Uh, My father was a primary care physician. Uh, I learned medicine, if you would, on his knee. Uh, I went to Jefferson Medical College uh, for my medical school and really was trained uh, always to look at a patient holistically. Even though I'm an orthopedic surgeon, I still wanted to know what was the cardiac status or did you have blood pressure and were you diabetic? Because all of those holistic ideas and conditions, in fact, make a difference to whether I'm putting a total joint in you or not. So it sort of came that way. The other piece that came is that I came from a large family. Uh, And unfortunately, including my parents, by the time I was 30, almost everyone had died. And I had been involved with multiple members of the family in their deaths. Uh, It wasn't something I was afraid of any longer. I'd been introduced to it very early in life. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's one of the paradoxes, if you will, of current, current medicine and current age in that we don't really experience death as we grow up as children, uh, even as young adults. Uh, What percentage of the audience right now can say they have a parent alive? And in reality, we, I know a ton of my friends who are in their 60s and early 70s who still have one parent, at least one parent alive. Uh, my parents were all dead by the time 
where they were in their mid to uh, slightly late 60s, mm. and true of all my aunts and uncles. I mean, that was sort of the normal expectation. And when my grandmother died, she was like 64, and uh, that was a normal that was a normal lifespan. And as a result, it taught me differently. There's certainly a lot of funerals to attend. Were you present for any of those folks when they passed yeah, away? Absolutely. I was, I was actually present for several as they passed away, and I was present for all the funerals. Were they in the hospital at the time, or were they in the home? Most were in the home. Now, was that by design? Were they known to be end of life, or was it an unexpected event that was happening in front of you? No, I mean, it was just a way at that time. I mean, we're talking the 40s and 50s and mm. early 60s, and people really, uh, a couple of the deaths were cancer. And that was slightly different, but uh, one died at home and one, you know, died at, uh, in the hospital. Uh, quite a few were cardiacs, uh, a couple were other kind of disease processes. But by and large, people were treated more as an outpatient status mm -hmm. than rushing into an ICU type thing. I think that's coming back. Uh, more and more technologies are coming around that enable us to be monitored very closely, even in real time, by a physician's office or a healthcare provider of sorts. There are businesses out there that are focused on empowering families to have an individual be able to spend the last part of their days in the home instead of in a, say, an assisted living facility or other long-term type care uh, environment. So, people will probably be going back in that direction where they're being more and more confronted. I think over these next generation or two, more of those people will be dealing with death in the home again, uh, much like what you were describing. Uh, you know, I think that it's being seen as a, as a good place to be when you are uh, in those times. I think there are two very important pieces. I think what you say is very accurate, but I think there are two very important pieces that support that. One is probably the what I think is one of the major changes in the future of medicine that has occurred. There's an organization called the Institute of Medicine, the IOM. And the IOM is a organization made up of uh, several areas of science, medicine being one. And they put out reports periodically. They're very, very learned, uh, usually very detailed and very long. You rarely, don't, you rarely want to read more than the executive summary. But in 2000, they came up with a document called Crossing the Quality Chiasm. And as a result of that, in, by, by 2005, every hospital in the country had a safety and quality committee. And it has dramatically changed the safety and the quality of care in America. In 2015, they came out with their next one. So it was 15 years later they came out with the next one, which is called Dying in America. And the focus of Dying in America was not what can we do for patients in the hospital, but the focus really is how do we support people at the ends of their lives to really be cared for in environments and settings that they want to be and where they want to be comfortable. The other piece that's changed significantly is that hospitals are developing what are called population management groups. Mm -hmm. And POP management is really about identifying people with a disease entity and learning how to support that entity and that patient, not in a hospital setting, but from the office to the home and to other areas in the community. So that 
prospectively you're dealing with a diabetic and nurses are calling and checking, what was your blood, what was your blood sugar this morning? Did you adjust your insulin? Oh, you have high blood pressure. Are you taking your medicine? Have you checked it lately? Well, we understand that you are, you know, that you've had been in the hospital twice now with asthmatic conditions as a result of your COPD, your chronic lung disease. And that means you're probably getting toward the end of your life. So what other support structures do we need to bring in place? What social services do we need to be able to bring to you and the family to support you comfortably out of the hospital rather than in? It's a preventative concept that is really starting to take hold and make a difference, which now keeps people more likely to be in a comfortable environment as they get older. And when it comes to how we handle the decisions that have to be made in an end-of-life event, if we are not prepared with at least some pretty significant conversations about exactly what needs to be done, particularly when there are more more than just a few family members present, I know that that's just a very difficult time to try to figure out what are we going to do? We're going to intubate? We're going to put them on the ventilator? Are we going to do chest compressions? All of those types of things. Are there other considerations in addition to some of those very aggressive and obviously life-saving measures like that, that people need to begin to contemplate and maybe have down in writing or in some other format? I know there are some technology services now that provide a platform for you to do that through video, actually, to rule out all uh, misunderstandings about what was intended. But what are the considerations that people need to be thinking about when it relates to their own or loved ones in a life? Well, I, I think the first sentence is end of life is a defined situation, but when do you start planning for end of life? I would make the sentence that probably you can't get a 20-year-old to write an end-of-life document, but can you get a newlywed couple to? When you have your first child, what do you normally do? There are two things you generally do. One, you get life insurance. Mm -hmm. Now you're a family, you have responsibilities. So you may be in your late 20s or mid-30s, and what else do you do? You generally go to a lawyer and draw up a financial will. I would suggest that if you think you need those two documents, you probably need to start to talk about advanced care planning. So advanced care planning is really a discussion that needs to be had. It's not a discussion that comes once, but it's a progressive set of discussions. And it may be over a period of a year when you're young, when you're in your 30s. When you're in your 30s, you're invincible. Mm -hmm. But yet I can tell you story after story of someone in their 30s who developed cancer, who got in a bad accident, and who really was in a situation where they needed to have been at least able to express their wishes in a way that family and other people would know. Clearly, when you develop a chronic condition, high blood pressure, COPD, a uh, significant cardiac situation, uh, renal disease, uh, and obviously cancer, uh, when those things occur, then if you haven't done it, you, you really do need to concentrate. The conversation is most important. And who do you have it with? You really need to be having it with your healthcare provider and you need to be having it with your family. And once you can have that conversation and establish what your values, it's really a values conversation. It's what's important to you. 
Uh, that's the conversation that needs to be had. And once it's had, then you need to start to think about how do I document that? And how do I spread the word so people know it? Right. And the way you document it is what's called an advanced directive. Uh, George is very fortunate. We're very progressive. We have a fabulous law about advanced directives that was passed in 2007. It combines all the things we used to think about, like durable powers of attorney, living will, guardianship. All of that's now in one document. And maybe the most important piece is identifying and writing down who will speak for you when you cannot speak for yourself. It's called a healthcare advocate. And that healthcare advocate is important because as long as you can speak for yourself, you can give people understanding of what your wishes are. But the situation may occur, even in your 30s, you get an automobile accident and you're unconscious, and you're going to need to have care. Who's going to speak for you? Who's going to talk about what's important to you and your philosophies? And so it's really important that you document that person's name. It's important that if you know how you feel about different things, that you express that. And that can go down in an advanced directive. Pulsed. P-O-L-S-T, is a acronym for a physician order for life-sustaining treatment. It's a different document. It is an order. In healthcare throughout America, the only way anything gets accomplished is with a physician order. I can express my wishes. That's what they are. But that doesn't convert them into an action form. Right. A pulse is an action form as it is an actual order. But it's not really meant for everybody. It's meant for those who have an advanced directive, but who've de their condition has really become more serious. It's become more advanced. They've been in the hospital a couple times with congestive heart failure, or they're known to have cancer, or their renal condition has gotten is going downhill. Basically, it's for those people who are likely to die in the next year. It's a judgment call. There's nothing absolute about it. it. And I will tell you that probably a third of the time that judgment is wrong. We can't predict that way. Uh, we're, not we're not mechanics. Uh, I'm not mechanical as a person. And as a physician, I can only make a relative judgment. It's an educated judgment. But if in, if in the next year you're likely to die, then it's really important that I know how you want to live. What are the qualitative pieces that you want me to understand as you go forward in this period of decline? How do you want to live your life as you decline? The really important sentence is, I'm not here to judge. Physician, healthcare providers, all the whole group of us, we're not here to judge what you want. Our problem comes if we don't know what you want. That's the real issue. We've been talking with Dr. Richard Cohen, an expert on end of life and, and how to approach that process of deciding what you want to have done in the event that you need to have life-saving measures to remain alive. It's possible based on your condition. It's possible based on, as Dr. Cohen was explaining, personal values that you have, that you wouldn't want those things done. And, and Dr. Cohen, I mean, talk about what happens if I don't have that. If I, if I don't have that order 
in place, regardless of what people know. Maybe someone says, well, he talked about this or that, but in, in that position, the doctor in the emergency room or wherever the care is being delivered is going to have to make a decision and they will probably act on the absence of documentation if it's not there, I would assume. They do. And I think we have to be very respectful of the position that physicians and healthcare providers are put in in that situation. The first thing is my natural instinct as a healthcare provider is to do everything I can to support you, to keep you alive, and to do whatever I can, hopefully to return you to a quality life. That's my, that's my goal. That's where my, my process is. The other piece in the puzzle is, fa is family and support because your family is usually made up of more than one person. It's made up of you know, a spouse, it's made up of uh, uh, your children, it's made up of your grandchildren. Uh, all of a sudden, you get a lot of people involved. Right. And if I've expressed my wishes and I've had a conversation with my family, then they understand. If on the other hand, I haven't had that opportunity or given them that opportunity, we have conflict because each of us have a different vision of that loved one. Right. And what we think is best or we want for them. Right. And the classic example we have, and it, there's a term for it if you're dealing end of life in a hospital, we call them the seagulls. The seagull <laughs> yes. arrives. Yes. <laughs> Who is the seagull? Well, mom is in trouble. Dad is there. The uh, One of the daughters is there. But we have a slightly distant son who's been living in another city and really isn't that communicative. And all of a sudden, everybody knows what mama wants or thinks they do or thinks is best. And the seagull flies in to say, no, 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 no. Well, oftentimes the seagull's got ulterior motives. And they're not necessarily bad ones, but they're his personal feeling. It may be that he didn't feel that he had been as responsive as he should. And he may feel somewhat guilty about things. So it becomes disruptive. Mm -hmm. And rather than being able to give mother the best care with the best collaborative efforts, where the healthcare providers and the family sit down and realistically discuss the situation, we have one outsider who can disrupt this smooth flow of what should be a peaceful situation. We've had conversations in my home a time or two about what we would want to have happen and, and that sort of thing. Nothing is documented on paper. Uh, wife and I are late 40s and don't have any significant things going on health-wise outside of just the day-to-day -day risk of driving and traffic and so forth. But So we haven't put anything on paper. So in the situation where, uh, using my, my example, Julie would be able to tell the physician while I'm obtunded in the ER that this is what he wanted but it's not written down, it's not documented. And so therefore, if what I wanted, if, if she says what he, what he said was he didn't want to be on a ventilator, what do you do when it's not documented? Well, I think the first thing is, who's going to speak for you? And who in the state of Georgia legally has the right to speak for you? So that's the most important sentence. As I said earlier, it would really be nice if you had a document that if did nothing else, just appointed Julie yeah. as the person to speak for yeah. you. But in the state of Georgia, there is a lineage. I mean, it's legal. There's a whole lineage down there. And clearly the first and most important person is the spouse. If the spouse is not able 
then it becomes the children. And then there's a lineage below that as well. And it may be a significant other who you've been living with for 10 years, but never got, you know, never got a legal document on. So the base, the first thing is who's got the legal right to speak. And that person must be given the rights and the understanding of the healthcare team to honor that person's understanding. Particularly if Julie says, the two of us have talked about this. We understand what each other wanted. This is what he's told me he wants. And that needs to be honored. And it should be honored. And I don't think there's many times that it wouldn't be honored. I see. And when it comes to actually documented, you mentioned the, the, the Pulse document that you would advise somebody has that it's the physician orders that would be implemented around life-saving measures in the event that someone gets into that sort of situation. But I mean, in terms of having it documented well and, and having it available, do you have recommendations on how best to document it, how to keep it? Is it, it does it get reflected? If, I've, if my doctor knows I have it, does it get reflected into my electronic medical record in some form or fashion so the hospital knows? I mean, how do we keep track of the document? Well, I think there are a couple answers to the question. Number one, the Georgia law actually has the Georgia Advanced Directive within it for the 2007 uh, Advanced Directive Law. Georgia Health Decisions has created a critical conditions planning guide that is distributed throughout the state. And that's an education piece that also at the end of it is the Georgia Advanced Directive. That's one way of getting it put together. The other piece that's very important is what do you do with your legal documents? Well, your lawyer has one. Well, that's the most important person and maybe one of your one of your family members does. Healthcare is different. Healthcare is we need availability. It's back to the sentence of yeah, communication. Right. And communication means who has it when they need it. What we're trying to do is to educate people that when you have an advanced directive, when you have a pulse, Put number one, communicate that to the family members so they know it. Have a bunch of copies. Put one of the copies on your refrigerator or on your front window. And believe it or not, there are people who put them in the window. So if EMS get called or a neighbor's, there it is, it's available. The other piece is you have a family physician, hopefully, or a primary care physician. That physician should have that and it should be put into his EMR. A lot of our hospitals now are communicating with our physician's offices where the EMRs communicate back and forth. The other piece is if you've ever been to a hospital or are going to the hospital, please bring your advanced directive a copy with you so that it will go in to the EMR. If you are in a hospital that has multiple hospitals in the system, they can all communicate with each other. There are services out there in Georgia, is really not ahead of this curve. We're behind the curve. We don't really have a registry in the state of Georgia, an organized registry. It's an ideal thing and something we should have with time. Uh, it is possible that as a result of the Affordable Care Act and other federal issues, that we're becoming much more computer-based, that part of that is requiring us to have computers and there's a connectivity in that. And as part of moving forward with healthcare and computerization, we're gonna actually start to come up with some uh, unplanned, if you will, unplanned from the sense 
of what we're talking about, advanced care plans, we're, we're going to end up with some opportunities for networking where those documents might actually be obtainable as a secondary fact. But the real point is make sure everyone who you think within the healthcare world would need one to have it ahead of time. What would you say to physicians who are listening? Many of the people, because we do this show with Medical Association of Georgia, many, many of our listeners are, are members of MAG. So talking to physicians as a, as a colleague who has this expertise and knowledge in end-of-life procedures and conversations, how to approach them, what would you advise to your, to your peer physician peers as to how they should handle this conversation? Should it be brought up in the history and physical type interview? How should we broach the topics and make recommendations? I think there's several things. The first thing is everyone's afraid of death. Doctors don't like to talk about it. Patients don't like to talk about it. The public doesn't want to talk about it. But there has been a significant change in the last few years. And as I say, the IOM report, I think, is going to pick up and help a great deal. To me, we need to overcome the fear, both the fear of the physician to have the conversation, the fear of the patient to discuss it. So my mantra is that asking a patient about whether they have an advanced directive or an advanced care plan should be as simple as asking, do you have an allergy? We all have a past medical history request when you come into the office. Have you had high blood pressure, diabetes, tuberculosis? Do you have allergies? Do you have an advanced directive? So we need to normalize that piece. The other side of the coin is, as a physician, we need to not only say it's a normal thing, I want all of my, it's not because you have high blood pressure. No, I want all of my patients to have an advanced directive. No, it's not because I think you're going to die in the next year. I just think it's part of all of good health care and good health care planning. It's a preventative piece, if you will. So I want my doctors to say to my patients, to the patients, to their patients, Mrs. Jones, I would like you to have an advanced care plan. I have one, and I expect all of my patients to have one. And Sally, my mid-level, will give you some educational material that I'd like you to review. And next time you come back, if you want, we can talk more about that. One of the nice things that's happened recently is there is always a reason why doctors don't want. And that's just human nature. What is one of the reasons? I'm afraid that that might be a legal issue. Well, the good news is the recent Pulse law uh, that went into effect in 2015 provides complete immunity for discussions about Pulse, the advanced directive law, provided a complete immunity as well. What is the next issue that's involved with all of this? That becomes, how do I start the conversation? I haven't had a lot of education. It depends on what my age group is. If I'm 50, in medical school, we never talked about, believe it or not, end of life, ethics, these palliative care, it didn't even exist then. The younger physicians in their 30s have had education, and, and that makes a big difference uh, in your ability to deal with this. We've, you know, there are instruments. Uh, the Pulse Collaborative is putting together educational material. Uh, we're trying to reach out to the doctors and try to help them uh, and explain to them and provide them the ability to become a little more uh, comfortable in these conversations. Uh, CMS, the Medicare, has just come up as of January 1 
and now has two codes so that you can be reimbursed. You can be reimbursed for the initial conversation and for 30-minute segments beyond. So, you know, it won't be fabulous, uh, a fabulous reimbursement, but there is reimbursement now. It's respecting the, the fact that it takes time to make that conversation happen. And obviously that is what, that's what your, your time and, and your earning is built upon is sharing your expertise. And that comes with dedicating some office time to that sort of conversation. So it's good to know, it kind of makes sense with some of the other value-based measures that we have in place now talking about the patient about their diabetes, for example, that you used earlier. The, if I am doing what the, the merit-based and value-based reimbursements want, then I'm talking about those things on a regular basis with my patients. So it sounds like it fits right into that. It does, very much so. And clearly from the, from the quality of life perspective, you know, having worked in cardiovascular intensive care in my career, I mean, that's where, you know, many, many people are facing end of life issues and, and to be able to experience firsthand as a healthcare provider, the, the stress and, and angst that is caused within a family when those situations arise that you discussed earlier, where things aren't well documented and there's a, a, a different opinion for each individual in some cases, and they can be quite passionate and, uh, and, and those situations can really be devastating on a family dynamic. So to have this kind of planned out in advance so that you can avoid a lot of that would certainly help, I think, the family in addition to the patient. I have a couple mantras. I, I already told you one, obviously, advanced care planning in an office should be as equal as asking for allergies. The other mantra that I have is, what is going to be the feeling of those who are left behind, those who survive that death? six months afterwards. Is the vision going to be one of somebody who died comfortably, who died in a way that was provided the support necessary? Did the family feel supported? Did we make the right decisions? Well, if I know your decisions, then I can't make a wrong decision. I didn't have to choose. And if the healthcare team worked together effectively and you died peacefully, and I think six months later, I made the decisions that Sam wanted, then I'm not gonna feel guilty and I'm gonna have a good memory. If on the other hand, that was an uncomfortable death, one that had pain, one where there was uh, confusion as to what's the best course to follow, that memory is not gonna be a very pleasant one. What are some good resources that you would recommend individuals turn to to get better educated to be able to better handle that kind of conversation with a loved one or just to be more effective in having that kind of conversation with a spouse or other loved one. Um, you know, are there websites, are there support resources out there for me to learn more about that? There are websites. Uh, the Georgia Pulse has one, Georgia Health Decisions, Critical Conditions has, the National Pulse does, uh, the Georgia Department of Public Health uh, they are the ones who are responsible for the post form itself, uh, their website. I think the other piece, if there was one sentence I could make, and I'd, I'm not the author or anything, but there was a marvelous book that was printed and came into press in the end of 2015. It's a book called Being Mortal. Uh, it was written by a physician, Atul Gawande, uh, Mass General Hospital, Harvard Medical School. Uh, MD, but also PhD public health. 
And it's a absolutely fabulous book about dying in America and about how to create support structures, what society needs. It's a short read, it's an easy read. Uh, and I really encourage people, physicians in particular, to get it. It's, uh, I was on the, it may still be, but it was for a long time when the New York Times top 10 bestsellers, uh, an unusual book to be in such a position. I know book clubs around the, around the state of Georgia, not doctor book clubs, but public book clubs, people in the neighborhood who are creating, and they've gotten onto this book and are expanding beyond the book to creating other activities as a result of the book. Uh, there is a program that's called Being Mortal, and it's a video program that we can take into communities where we have someone who's educated in, in healthcare and these issues who can pull together and go to a religious group, who can go to a medical staff meeting, who can uh, go to other areas in the state. And it's about a 45-minute video that then stop, stimulates in a, in a discussion among the people who are there to talk about this and to become comfortable with this topic. And I think this book is a remarkable national icebreaker. The last piece is that there is an organization called Converse, the Conversation Project. And the Conversation Project takes a very different attitude than if you would, you think that medicine does. Medicine, if you will, is one of our goals is to educate the public about healthcare. But we come from it from a medical side. The Conversation Project is, an, is a project out of Boston that is coming across the country and its purpose is for the public to take ownership of this topic and for the public to assume and with their support, the conversation project support for the public to have the conversation so that they're in, they're in effect pushing the healthcare field to have the conversation. And they're coming from the other side and providing momentum from the other side for this conversation. You have some final thoughts before I get you back to the office? I think I've pretty well told you those thoughts. Uh, I, I believe that the ongoing dialogue throughout the community is critical. I think that the government has a responsibility to help us find a way to provide support services beyond the hospital setting into the community. We do not provide the services we need for those in need to stay within the community to obtain their health care. And the last thing is, I think it's important for every person, 40 and over for sure, 30 and over maybe, to really sit down and start to have a conversation. I know it's unpleasant, but if you're able to have a conversation about what to do with your assets, if you should die, you should be able to have one what to do with your life. Well, I certainly appreciate you making some time to stop in and make some sense of what uh, I think, as you mentioned, could potentially be something stressful, but I've uh, given some great insights into how to approach it in such a way that it doesn't have to be stressful, doesn't have to be frightening, and actually can leave you and your family members with a greater sense of of peace uh, around anticipating an event like that and and to uh, be able to share some ways for our colleagues in the healthcare delivery space to be able to approach those conversations and be able to make sure that their patients are moving down the road of having a plan should something like that come to pass for themselves or their loved ones. 
If you haven't done so already and you're coming back for the podcast, if you look in the upper left-hand corner of the show page, you'll see the Apple logo there. That'll take you over to the iTunes store where the Top Docs Radio Show podcast lives, and you can subscribe to us. And that way, each week when the new episode comes out, it's downloaded straight to your device and your podcast, ready for you to check it out when it's convenient for you. And clearly, this is a topic that would have great value to just about anybody that you know, you included. So we would really appreciate it if you turn around and put this out on LinkedIn, Facebook, social media sites that you uh, participate in. And we'll say thank you very much to everybody that does that for us. Uh, you might just be putting some information in the hands that makes somebody uh, a big difference in their life. And, and that's a great gift for you. We'll say thank you for that. And Dr. Cohen, it was a treat to have a chance to sit down with you here in the studio. Thank you for the opportunity. I've enjoyed it. Everybody over at Medical Association of Georgia, Lori and, and Susan and Mandy and Tom and Donald, thank you so much for being partners with the Top Docs Radio Show. We really appreciate Medical Association of Georgia helping to make this show possible and putting out these great guests with all these great topics we've been covering. We look forward to catching up with you all same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. 